Hi, my friends at Future Primitive. I am very happy that Peter H. Kahn has accepted my invitation today to speak together and to uh, broadcast it to you. So, Peter Kahn is Associate Professor in the Department of Psychology and Director of the Human Interaction with Nature and Technological Systems Lab. The Hints Lab seeks to address from an ethical stance two world trends that are powerfully reshaping human existence. One, the degradation, if not destruction, of large parts of the natural world, and two, unprecedented technological developments, both in terms of its computational sophistication and pervasiveness. He received his PhD from the University of California, Berkeley. His publications have appeared in several journals like Child Development, Development Psychology, and he has written several books. His most recent book is titled Technological Nature, Adaptation, and the Future of Human Life. Uh, you can find the titles of his other books uh, on his website, and uh, I'm sure we will talk about that. So, Peter, welcome to you. And uh, I want to ask you a, uh, a funny question. How do you feel that it has influenced you to have been to university as, at Berkeley other than at another university? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like the question the perceptive from the very beginning. Uh, I've never been asked that question, and yet uh, I think it's a very uh, deep part of my um, intellectual lineage and heritage. Maybe I should back up and say that um, I think on your website that you, you mentioned that you were disenchanted with education yourself. Uh, as a as a child, yeah, and uh, I, I had that experience. And so I dropped out of school in uh, at eighth grade, and I went out to Berkeley, California, then as a as a thirteen, and and just attended an alternative school for um, a few years that was non academic. And uh, then there's a period when I became part of a community in Northern California, about five hours north of the Bay Area, that I would like to be able to speak more about later. Uh, but it was only at the age of 20 that I decided to uh, go back to school and uh, realize, realize I love academics, I love, I love ideas, mm-hmm. uh, I love the mind. But um, there was something about the educational process that that was so troubling as a child and, and so uninteresting that it's, it's, it's striking that somebody can, like myself, can love it so much. As, and yet, as a, as a child, uh, the school system um, doesn't offer very much 
Berkeley, so my first my, my first experience at Berkeley was really as a 13-year-old, and it was at the end of the 1960s, and I think we <laughs> share then. Uh, I was, uh, I'm probably about 10 years younger than you, but yeah. um, I, I definitely got in on the tail end of Berkeley in the 60s, which is an extraordinarily exciting time with the civil rights movement and uh, 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 Vietnam War uh, protests, and so I threw myself into that You know what? Me too. I was convinced. <laughs> yes, and, and I think we both thought that it's, it's just going to get better. Yes, uh, and it's going to get better fast. And it was a marvelous time to be alive. And and it and in some ways, my experience, uh, I, I think, as I followed the social trend, is the uh, intense urban activism of the '60s and early '70s started in the early '70s to give way to the back to the land movement back then, and I, in, in a sense, was part of that. And then, uh, and then at 20, I went to a junior college, uh, and then transferred because I didn't have any, um, have any schooling really. Uh, so I needed to catch up. Uh, and then, I, and then I went to Berkeley both as an undergrad and a graduate. And uh, the, I, I think what Berkeley offers is tremendous rigor. you, Peter. When I walk in nature and uh, or in the mountains, my mind is stimulated in a way that it seems that seems very different and much more alive than when I'm uh, seeking something on Google. Can you can you tell me why our minds feel so alive outside? Google and how and computers and 
how we're spending so much time not only inside and, and increasing the urban environment, but connected to screens and virtual spaces and teleoperated spaces, like we're having this conversation now on a telephone. Um, this is all very recent from an evolutionary time frame. And so our bodies and minds, I do not think, are well adapted to, to thrive in the environment that we're creating. Uh, and it's particularly well adapted to thrive and flourish in uh, close connection to nature. And so when we experience that, uh, we're aware of that. I think we're aware of something that's just true. That, 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 that's, that's what we need. And we need it physically and, and mentally and in terms of the human spirit. Well, thank you. Thank you for asking. And uh, I was thinking about sanity. And uh, the thought that came to me was that I feel more sane when I'm in touch with the outside. and Or like here, where I, I live amongst trees and stars. And so I was thinking, well, what do I mean by sanity? And it takes us, or it takes me to something I want to ask you. I think what I mean by sanity is that it's easy for, easier for me to feel my relationship with everything, my connectedness. What do you think about that? I agree. I'm not, uh, are we saying anything different? The, the feeling of connect, connectedness to a, a wider Maybe, maybe I would frame it in terms of this connectedness to a more than human world and, and a more than artifactual world. And, and, and we're losing, in part, we're losing that. that, that we're so connected both to other humans and to the things that we've created. And we're missing that connection to something more than what we've created. And in some ways, that, you know, we were talking uh, about this earlier uh, before the interview in terms of uh, the mystery and uh, a connection to something that's very hard to put into words. And then you face this challenge here most of your life as you try to use words to express something that goes beyond words. And I think mystery is a placeholder for, for that. And, it, and this connection to a more than human world, is, it's, it's difficult to put words to. And yet it's interesting because... When I receive 60 or 70 happy birthdays on Facebook, uh, it makes me happy. But is it the same kind of happiness that I have when I see that cottonwood tree outside recover its greenness? Well, and, 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 and I don't think we have to do an either or. Uh, I think the things, I, I think it's a, our, our movement from Paleolithic to Neolithic time and, and our movement into cities, I mean, that, that has tremendous upsides. It's, 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 when people get together and you have concentration of people and you have food stores that allow for uh, stability of a food source and, and then you have some sort of specialization, there's tremendous creativity that, are, that can emerge in those contexts. And, you know, when Lewis Mumford, Rights of the city of you know, history of cities. He 
unleashes, for example, scientific uh, culture and creativity. So there's some very strong upside to the human movement, uh, both culturally, scientifically, and technologically. But it's only a part of us. And I, the concern I have is that as we recognize the upside and can feel the, you know, as your, your example with the 50 happy birthdays with Facebook, I mean, we can feel pleasure and satisfaction and meaning through the technological infrastructure that we create and live in. It, it's only a part of our psyche. And we're not recognizing that the other part, huge part, is a connection to the natural world. And uh, I, I'd like to emphasize two parts of this connection because I think one part often gets left out. Um, many environmentalists uh, are, are focused on everyday local domestic nature and a connection to that. And it, mm-hmm. especially as we move increasingly to urban environments, people are talking about, we'll get your kids outside and park along you know, on the grass and, 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 you know, having relationships with pets and dogs and, and all of that's important. Um, but I think it's only half, half of what we need. And the other half of what we need is, um, a much more wild, uh, form of interaction with nature. And for that, we both need more wild nature and we need to move into wild relationships with it. And that gets very little voice because we're losing so much of it that people don't have the experience of it anymore. And if they don't have the experience of it, we don't have the language to talk about it. And our range of ideas become increasingly uh, constrained. And so I think what I'm um, so drawn to with your organization of not only the expansion, and if I'm understanding, you can help me if I'm understanding your organization, mm-hmm. right? But what I'm sensing is that and there's not only a um, an expansion of mind and consciousness that you're interested in, but a connection to an, an, an expansion that's so deeply connected to the, the physical embodiment of nature and also the mystery of nature that has the uh, 10, 100,000 100, year history in our evolution. Mm-hmm. When you put all of that together, you have a very powerful concept of, of who we are and, and who we can become. Do you think that there might be a coincidence, synchronicity, between the discovery of LSD and our moving away from our wildness, meaning being further away from the natural world, notwithstanding that uh, Albert Hoffman uh, loved nature in the most beautiful and tender way. Hmm. How, how do you see the impossible synchronicity? Uh, I was you thinking of... Uh, uh, thank you for asking. I was thinking of inner wildness and outer wildness. So the way I was thinking is that as we might be losing our connection with the outer wildness, we were given a medicine and a means to... Uh, be more connected to our inner wildness. Right. You know, these are ideas um, my collaborator Patricia Hasbach and I are editing a, a new volume with MIT Press that will be coming out in about um, six 
Philip and I are trying to, in, in, our, in, our, own, in our own work in that, in that volume, part of what we're trying to put on the map is exactly what you're highlighting, is that there's most people, when they're talking about wildness, are focused on wildness out there in nature, and that's hugely important. It's a lot of what we're trying to speak for. But there's also a mapping of outer wildness and inner wildness. And in large part, we need to also embrace uh, and uh, deepen our inner wildness. And the way we uh, have been focused on is, is two, two forms of primal energy that we're particularly drawn to. And they're not new, of course. I mean, Freud structured much of his theorizing around these two, what he calls instincts, and that's the sexual instincts and the aggressive instincts. And we see them as them in terms of primal passions and the sexual passions and the, and the aggressive passions, but both of them have very beautiful, powerful, deep, uh, and pure um, uh, expressions. Mm-hmm. But they also get uh, perverted, and and in, and in modern times, usually uh, quite a lot. You think of the uh, way that we've moved into such a warrior for ten thousand years, uh, a warrior culture, uh, and it's taking that aggressive energy that has a purity to it, for example, in the hunt. Uh, there's a lot of uh, energy there that allows one to run down a bull. You know, we're talking about the Kalahari Desert, and when Elizabeth Marshall Thomas talks about the Bushmen running down a bull inland in 120-degree heat, you know, that's five, six, eight, eight hours of running, huge energy outflow. Uh, and there's aggression there, aggression that's beautiful and deep and, and part of our origins. But that gets twisted when it doesn't have healthy expressions. When we disconnect ourselves from those wild nature expressions, they get perverted. And, and I think the canonical form of that perversion is we, we kill each other in, in, in battle. And that's, in a sense, that's the H-bomb. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yes, I'm... I'm uh, you know, Havenbach and I are, are very much in line with this idea of, of thinking about the importance of outer wildness, but also inner wildness. But inner wildness also needs, it, it's not straightforward. There's healthy expressions and, and unhealthy expressions. And one, one needs um, awareness and being able to work with those energies. So, uh, in your uh, beautiful article about being at your cabin on the land, you speak about uh, noise being like an addiction from which you need to withdraw. And I was thinking about, I I spoke with Linda Tucker, who has this uh, sanctuary in Africa for the white lions, and... Um, I said to her that I wondered about the origins of violence and I wondered if we had learned to get prey so we could nourish ourselves, if we had learned to do that from the lions way, way back. And then perhaps a chemical released in the brain by violence, we, came, we became addicted to that chemical. Um, what what do you think about the origins of violence and why it escalates? Yeah, very um, uh, very hard question. 
records aren't um, traced, but in, in our view uh, and the views of other people like Elizabeth Marshall Thomas, um, our Paleolithic ancestors were largely peace-bearing. The cost of war was too high for a nomadic tribe. The loss of individuals was too costly. It wasn't adaptive to have warfare. Mm-hmm. And so war started uh, emerging, not in our hunter-gatherer times, but as we make the shift from that to nomadic life, uh, from nomadic life to uh, uh, domestic, where we get control of food, uh, the, and then the concentration of people increases because we have control of food source and, and, and we don't have to move. So populations rise, uh, and we end up with hierarchical systems. So now we've got hierarchy, population increase, and um, specialization. And at that junction in, in our reading of the historical record, there were two pathways that seemed open to humanity from you know, very, very roughly some 10, 15,000 years ago. And that was peace-bearing, even within that framework, or war-bearing. And, uh, and, and there were um, large numbers of people that were peace-bearing, and the war-bearing ended up uh, prevailing. And, uh, and becoming embodied and uh, reified in many of the religions today. So it doesn't... Um, you know that that account of history it doesn't it doesn't provide the mechanism exactly to actually explain why that perversion happens to us become warfaring as, as much as it is a descriptive account of within a, the conditions that allow for it to happen. So when I then think about our future, I. I and I think we're very similar along these lines in, in that in terms of the utopian vision that's both practical and visionary, how do we how do we take the best of our earlier selves? And by earlier, I mean our paleolithic hunter-gatherer selves. Instead of thinking about going back to those times, how do we go back, pull from that, not uh, who we still are today, and then embed that within our scientific culture and within our uh, technological infrastructure and technological self. And this is something that uh, uh, Pat Hasbach and I are coming out with a new volume in, uh, in July uh, of 2012 with MIT Press. It's titled Ecopsychology, colon, Science, Totem, and the Technological Species. And what I just characterized is exactly what we're trying to do in this volume, which is to re-envision. I mean, this, was, this was back to your question almost of the uh, mm-hmm. earlier in our, in our conversation about what of the 70s or 60s are, is still powerful or, or shaping me today. And in part, the vision of eco-psychology in the 1960s was largely totemic, experiential, phenomenological. Right. And it was largely in rejection. It was largely a rejection of science. And, re, and it was a counterculture movement. And that's good to start something, but it's not—it's it, not the right program to move forward with, uh, because you can't remain counterculture and shape, continue to shape culture. You need to somehow become part of culture.
depth of the 60s and 70s and in terms of eco-psychology, that deep connection to nature, I then embed that and become allies with both the science and the technology. So in a sense, when, when, you, when, you, when you've talked about on your two shoulders, you have LSD on one side <laughs> and the h on the other, or when we were talking about bandolier, what, what is the name of that? Bandolier, bandolier. Yeah, and so there, that, on, on that ridge line, there's both Alamos on one side and a holy ground on the other mm-hmm. side of that ridge. Mm-hmm. And those, that's the, that's the, that's the mapping of the H-bomb or LSD or, or, or technology and spirit, technology and totem. And instead of trying to see them as uh, at odds with one another, I think ultimately what we need to do is bring them together because the technology is part of us. It's not to... The technology is not just coming from Google or Microsoft or being bought on us by corporations. I mean, we are technological beings. And we're drawn to technologies. We are not only consumers of it, but creators of it. And so we can't just project that problem out to other people. We have to own it and then, and then shape it and then make good choices of how to both design it and how to use it. I love this conversation because I believe that we are magnificently adaptive beings and otherwise we wouldn't be here after all this time. Uh-huh. So you're the one I want to go further in this question with uh, because people say to me, oh, my children are playing video games and they're on there. So they're, it's terrible, and what's going to happen? And I just think that there, there will be a beautiful convergence, uh, an adaptation. So I want to ask you more about your ideas. Mm. I'm not sure. It's a, I don't know. I think it's going to be as beautiful as you think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Many, many forms of adaptation will happen for us in prison. We 
might live full life biologically, but we're not doing well. And I think that a lot of what's been happening to us as a species is that we're in effect been creating our own prisons. And we are adapting to what we're creating, but we're not doing well. But now, but now here's the, the uh, almost the punchline or the, the problem space here is that we're not doing well, but because of the shifting baseline of awareness, we're not aware that we're not doing well. And that's a huge problem. I, I, I've, I've um, written about this in terms of what I call environmental generational amnesia. Yes. What is it to forgetting about our, what a healthy baseline is across generations? So that if children are basic, you know, a child born in San Quentin without any experience of the outside world, will take San Quentin as the norm, as, 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 a, as a normal condition uh, by which to then measure whether things can get better or get worse in uh, her or his life. Well, in effect, that's what all of us have done as children, as, and that's what children today are doing. They're constructing new baselines. The problem is, is that each generation, the amount of environmental destruction increases dramatically and each generation thinks of that as the normal condition, as, as not a degraded condition. I mean, I think there's a tremendous upside to that in, on one side, because even innocence of you, they're not jaded by thinking how lousy the world is. But at the same time, they don't have an accurate understanding of what the conditions are. And that is a huge problem, because when you try to tell people what's possible, what they're missing, they, they kind of look at you and say, well, I don't think I'm missing anything because they haven't had that experience. I was fascinated when I read your words when you said, go to, how about we went to St. Quentin and uh, uh, we considered it a zoo. And then we'd look at uh, the guy bashing the the other guy's head in and we'd go, oh, how interesting, that gorilla behavior. And so what I'm hearing you say is um, we're building our own zoo. We're living in the zoo. And uh, so who are the zookeepers? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, isn't that interesting? The uh, analogy is we're both both big and the cager. Now that is unusual. Hey, <laughs> that's, a, that's a fascinating thought. So oh, that, really like that. That, that takes yeah. me right back to wildness. I mean, how do you get out of a cage? By connecting, by becoming more wild, we can get out of the cage. How about that? More about wildness, please. Yeah, uh, very much. Yeah, I think wildness is a... Uh, scary term for some people, and I think maybe because you know the because our experience of wildness is often perverted, uh, both in our and we've talked about wildness within and the perversion of sexual energy and, and aggressive energy, but I think wild without has also changed uh, a good deal. Um, I mean, you were talking about the lions of the Kalahari. When Elizabeth Marshall Thomas wrote of the relationship in the 1950s as a Bushman she lived with, and their relationship with the lions, there was a, there was a coexistence between people 
and the lion. But the, but the lion, um, they didn't eat people, almost never. Uh, and yet they could, if they wanted to, and they didn't. And um, they didn't have a history of eating people, and uh, people uh, respected the lions. They, uh, they, you know, hunter-gatherers walked the land during the heat of the day. They didn't walk in the morning when the lions were out. Yeah. Uh, and that way stayed away from the lions, kept distance, respected the rich humility. Uh, uh, and then as humans gained control over nature in the world, and, for example, once you have guns and you can kill lions, then all of a sudden you can walk whenever you want, and as the lions then push back, you kill the lions, and now you have now you have a warrior model, a domination model between you and the wild world. And then the lions become very aggressive, and as soon as they get perverted, their wild energy gets perverted because basically they, are, they start attacking people. And right now it's very dangerous in Africa to walk where lions are because we've lost that notion of deep mutual respect and consideration. So what I'm highlighting is that even embedded in notions of wildness that have notions of self-organization, spontaneity, freedom, uh, bigness, vastness, all of these qualities, even within all of that, there's also self-regulation. And it checks, it checks the abuses of wildness itself. And if we think about wildness in that way, then maybe for people it can become uh, less scary. Mm-hmm. But, at the, but at the same time, we need to be open to the power of nature. It's like we, we're so scared. We're, we're, we're too scared of nature. <laughs> mm. and, and we're too, we're too comfortable with comfort. I mean, comfort is great, but then too much comfort. It's like we live in a tepid pool where it's never too hot, never too cold. Everything is kind of controlled. And we dumb ourselves down uh, in the name of civilization. And as we dumb ourselves down, we lose the depth and richness of, of human experience. Uh, so we need to open ourselves up, open ourselves up to the, not only the spontaneous and the joyful and the beautiful and the comforting parts of nature, but also to the parts that are uncomfortable and also potentially threatening. But see, now it seems we are more afraid of our own feelings than uh, we are afraid of a lion. So when you say open yourself up to um, to joy, to um, oh, okay. to strong feelings, uh, mm-hmm. it seems like we're more afraid of our own feelings. Well, we're still we're still here, although almost increasingly scared of nature. I mean, I, I remember uh, seeing a sign at, at Stinson Beach in, uh, in Northern California, and it, it said something like, you know, warning, big sign, warning. And it was many, uh, in 19, sometimes you get the date, there was a shark attack somebody off the coast. You know, be careful. You know, I think something like that. It's a huge sign. And basically, all these people are going out onto the beach with a huge sign telling them that, that they could get killed in the, in, in the water. And, and it scares people. And I think it unduly scares people because if you... There were no signs in the parking lot that said, warning, in the last year, there have been 10 muggings and two car thefts and one killing or something, right? I mean, we deal with harms in human context all the time, but we don't have signs that are scaring us about it. There was one shark attack in, you know, 10 or 20 years, and all of a sudden we get the big sign. It 
And mm-hmm. as we lose experience with the wild, we don't actually have the experience to know that it's, we don't have to be so scared. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're more yeah. we're more afraid of being afraid than we're afraid of the shark. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So I wanted to ask you in your conversation with Pat, you um, spoke about eco-feminism, and uh, then you said you prefer to call it the warrior ethos. And I, um, I wonder what yeah. you meant by the warrior ethos. Well, we've, we've, we've talked about that somewhere. Uh, trying to, you know, in our conversation... Today we've, we've spoken some of that and just trying yeah. to trace the origins of, of our warrior self. And I think recognizing in, in many ways it's, a, a, it's not only a perversion of our aggressive energy, but, but it seems to be also an offshoot of uh, not simply hierarchical unjust systems, but hierarchical unjust systems that are unjust in terms of uh, gender issues. And, and Basically, when the warrior ethos took hold in the Neolithic period, it was hand-in-hand with patriarchy and with the subjugation of women. And before that, before the warrior ethos and before the hierarchical religious structures, there was was gender equality between men and women. It doesn't mean identicalness. I mean, when Elizabeth Marshall Thomas talks about men and women in So that's the question that I I want to ask you is why do we destroy the very nature we love? Uh, is it similar to is it a patriarchal situation? Is it similar to rape? Is the rape of nature similar to the rape of women? Domination of nature, the domination of, of 
people. I mean, when Troy talks about man being humanity to man, that's in a, even that is in a male principle framing of it. And if you think of the domination of nature and the domination of men over women, that feels pretty congruent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, going back to uh, an interesting issue we were talking about with when I'm in nine months of the year, I'm in uh, the Pacific Northwest, but then three months of the year, I'm off the grid and I'm in, in, in my land and part of the community in, in Northern California. When I make that shift every year, um, it's always jarring for me um, because when I go into a more rural setting, and it happens also when I go backpacking or when I go mountaineering, when I, I've been uh, six times uh, hunting uh, Denali in Alaska and solo trips up there. Every time I go into more wild settings, it's very unsettling to me. I'm scared. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there are rattlesnakes uh, in, in the mountains in, in, in California, and when I get back on the land, I'm thinking, gosh, I'm scared. You know, am, am I going to get hit? And it takes it doesn't take me that long, given my, I've done this so often, but it will take anywhere from one day to two weeks to get back into a rhythm of comfort in a landscape that, that's my home, and my home that I've left for nine months. And I go back and forth in that movement, and I'm always so aware that if it's that hard for me to make that shift back into not being scared of the wild, I can only imagine how hard it would be for somebody who grew up and has spent most of their life in an urban environment to move into a more wild setting and recognize that the apprehension that they have of the wild is in, 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 it's not the it's not an accurate way. You're not calibrated way. Um, you need time. You need time to be in the wild in order to calibrate in a right way to what the wild's really about. And if you think of the mapping that we talk about, it, potentially that's the same, not only in the wild out there, but the wild within. Hmm. So there's jet lag and there's nature lag. Nature lag can be just like jet lag. <laughs> jet- takes time uh, to adapt. Yeah, that's a, I, I love that term. That's, that's great. Nature lag. Yeah, nature lag. Yeah. You know, but if we're aware of it, just it's beautiful. Just like with jet lag, if you're aware of it, you name it, and then you experience it, you don't over, you know, you don't worry. You know, you travel and you get jet lag and you say, oh, okay, this is normal. And let me give it a day or three days, and maybe even a week. You don't, you don't overplay it. Well, similarly, if we had the term nature lag, (laughs) (laughs) we we just name it and say, oh, okay, I'm sleeping out into the stars again. I'm scared. I mean, that happens to me every every time when I'm there and I'm on the ground, I'm under the night sky, and I'm saying to myself, I'm supposed to be in one with nature, and I'm just feeling scared, damn it, what's wrong? And it's nature lag. (laughs) Beautiful. Next night, things are much better. By the third night, everything's great. <laughs> I absolutely love that. 
um, you open my awareness to nature like that's it. I mean, I'll, I'll have to look for some homeopathics. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the the backpacking homeopathics yeah. that will make it uh, the transition easier. <laughs> so uh, we're coming around here to um, we're bringing this conversation around, and uh, so I'd like to ask you, what about when you go to Denali or you go to your land? and uh, you are past the nature lag, um, what is the difference between having language and silence? Mm. Silence is beautiful. I love words. I love writing. I love speaking. But there are perceptions that happen in silence that um, can't happen with words. So there's a, there's a, there's a lovely balance be, between them, and nature uh, nature affords silence if, if we let it. Uh, you know, John Muir, I think, has a beautiful passage where he talks about you need to go alone in silence into the mountains. You can't, and if you just go with people, and there's chatter, then all that chatter just carries forward, and, and you're missing part of the depth of the experience. So that's uh, something to work with. Mm-hmm. It's a tool. Mm-hmm. Provides an, an avenue for deepening. What, what's your experience with silence? Everything, the, the inside of me gets bigger. And I dis yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'll leave it at yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I like that. Peter Kahn, I'm so grateful for our conversation. And as I usually do, I would like to ask you, what would you like to say in closing? Thank you so much. Future Primitive is made possible by the Marion Institute. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider supporting our work by making a tax-deductible contribution online at futureprimitive.org.